This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. These long-duration balloons that NASA flies out of Antarctica, you launch the balloon, it's filled with helium, and you uh, launch it, and then it rises up and up and up till it's above 99% of the atmosphere. And by the time it gets to that height, which is 40 kilometers, it's the size of a football stadium. By the way, I think we're the only telescope right, that NASA launches on this platform that looks down, right? Like everyone else wants to go into space to look up. But what we've done is we've, you know, built a payload that looks down. That's Abigail Vierig. She's the woman behind what to me may be the most improbable scientific experiment I've ever heard of. She's looking for neutrinos, those tiny, invisible and almost undetectable particles that rain down on us from space by the trillions every second. But the neutrinos Abby's hoping to find, very high-energy ones from what she calls crazy and mysterious places far beyond our own galaxy, those neutrinos are especially elusive, which is why she's built an upside-down telescope gazing at the Antarctic ice. I love having the chance to talk with you because neutrinos fascinate me, and you're on the grand search for them in unusual ways. How long have you been looking for neutrinos? I've been looking for neutrinos, I guess, for about 15 years. So since I started graduate school. And how many have you actually found? (laughs) Unfortunately, we found zero. So it's a little bit disappointing in that sense that you pour 15 years of your life into something and you still haven't seen anything. You know, it's so interesting. The people all over the world seem to be looking for neutrinos. I spent a day in a huge cave under a mountain in Italy about 20 years ago with a researcher looking for neutrinos. And I think it was in a huge tank of water about the size of a football field. And that's been going on for a long time. And they're still hard to pin down. It's so interesting. What it, why are we working so hard, spending so many resources, so much of our of scientists' careers looking for this thing, this little baby thing? What, why, why do it? So I like to think about them as the perfect messenger particle. Meaning what? We look for neutrinos from outer space. We look for what we call astrophysical neutrinos that come from presumably sources outside our own galaxy. So we were hoping to learn about how the highest energy sources in the universe work. Like what is the physics that allows you to make particles at really high energies? And it turns out that neutrinos are really nice for learning about the universe because they used to call them these little baby particles. And it's true. The thing that makes them really nice particles to study is that they travel through the universe more or less unimpeded, meaning on their way here, it's very unlikely they'll interact with something. And so that means that you can get a really clear picture about the universe that's far away. You measure the energy of the neutrino and where it came from, and you can learn about these, you know, most energetic and crazy, frankly, crazy places in the universe where um, physics is at its highest energies. What makes a place in the universe crazy? What I, I want to pick up on that. What do you mean by that? 
it's sort of the most um, violent places where the processes, the physical processes that are happening in places like active galactic nuclei, which are giant black holes in the centers of galaxies that are accreting matter, and then some of them shoot out particles in our direction. Um, we'd like to learn about how those work, like what makes a source, what what allows a source, what allows a place in the universe to be able to accelerate particles mm -hmm. to such high energies. We don't really know. Um, we do think that it requires a large magnetic field to be able to do that and probably a dense place with lots of stuff. But uh, we'd like to figure out how that happens. So let me let me get back to something you said and make sure I understand the basics of the neutrino. They travel this great distance across the universe without interacting with anything. They just miss hitting anything because there's nothing there where they're, they have, most of them are traveling. But the things they do hit... What do they hit that makes a, re a reaction occur? Is it the nucleus of the atom or something smaller? So the thing that makes the neutrino special is that it's not charged. Neutrino is a little chargeless particle. Then it's really hard to interact with matter. It's just not very frequent. And so it's all, it's all probabilistic. So you said like um, they travel through the universe and they don't interact with anything and then they get to your detector and they interact. Well, what are they interacting with? It turns out that it's just because it's all probabilistic. There isn't on the, on the way from where the neutrino is made to us, even though they travel a really long distance, there's not a lot of stuff in space, right? So there's just a very low chance that it would interact with anything. And then when it, when it gets here to earth, um, we build a very dense detector that there's a chance that it interacts. And when it interacts, it's mostly with pieces of the nucleus. Are these detectors huge vats of water or some other substance? What, what, are, they, what are they trying to catch the neutrino with? Well, there's all kinds of um, detectors out there. Um, you basically build a big vat of stuff, like you said, either a big vat of water or a big vat of, it turns out, liquid argon or some other stuff. And then you um, monitor your large volume. You instrument it with, with photo detectors usually. Um, so you get a little and, flash of light when you get yeah. an interaction. Right. So a neutrino hits an atom, makes a, makes a shower of particles in your you know, detector, and that shower of particles gives off light. Now, to find the neutrinos you're looking for, those, these very high-energy ones, you've built an instrument that looks for radio sparks, not sparks of light, right? And you fly it high over the South Pole? Yeah, it's almost kind of a crazy idea, right? That, like, if you want to look for the highest-energy particles, the highest-energy neutrinos, they're so rare. There's so few places in the universe that are that extreme, that, that it's really rare to be able to make particles at these high energies. So there just aren't that many of them. And what that means, what that translates to as an experimentalist, is that you have to build a really big detector. Like if you're looking for something that's very rare, you have to build a really big detector. And even those giant vats of water under the mountain, you know, overburden, eventually are not big enough for the type of neutrinos that we want to look for, the highest energies. So you have to get creative. And so if you're not going to build it in your lab and you're not going to be able to build a big enough vat of water, you go out and look for something that's naturally occurring that'll do the job. And so for us, it's 
a large block of ice in Antarctica. That's the best um, neutrino detector for the highest energies that there is. It sounded to me wonderfully imaginative uh, way of doing it, which is to send up a balloon, a huge balloon, by the way. When you send it up, when you start out the balloon, how big is it? And then, and then it gets bigger. But how how big is it when it starts? Yeah. So when it starts, um, I, I actually don't, I don't know how to put a number on how big it is when it starts. I can sort of imagine it, but it's, you know, a few stories tall when it starts. And then when it reaches what the upper atmosphere, the troposphere, how big does it get? Yeah. So these long duration balloons that NASA flies out of Antarctica, you launch the balloon and then it rises up and up and up till it's above 99% of the atmosphere. And by the time it gets to that height, which is 40 kilometers, it's the size of a football stadium. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And it's so, it's carrying a half a ton of equipment. Huh? Yeah, it's carrying a half a ton of equipment. And then the other thing that's amazing, which I always like to say, is that not only is it the size of, you know, Soldier Field, which is right outside my apartment window, it's it's made of essentially dry cleaning bags. Like, you know, those really thin bags that go over your clothes when you get them home from the dry cleaners? <laughs> yeah, right. The balloon is, it has to be a really lightweight balloon because otherwise the balloon itself weighs it down. And so, so you know, it's that, just... It, it, the material is that thin? It's really what they put thin over plastic. Clothes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And it gets through pummeling by winds and things like that? Yeah, so on the way up, it, it sees a lot of stress through the troposphere, which is where there's more winds and, and more temperature changes. But then by the time it gets to float altitude, where it's nicely expanded and, and huge, there's not a lot of air up there anymore. So it's almost like it's in space, actually. I got the impression from hearing you talk about this, that it moves in a circle because of some atmospheric effect. What, what, you don't have to guide it. No. So the reason why this NASA long-duration balloon program is in, in Antarctica is not for us. I mean, we love it because we can look at a lot of ice in Antarctica. We can, you know, with our antennas, we can look for neutrino interactions in a lot of ice. But that's actually just a coincidence. The reason that the balloon program exists in Antarctica is because in the summer, in the austral summer, there are these winds that set up around Antarctica in the upper atmosphere that they call the circumpolar winds. So it goes around the pole. So if you launch your balloon into the upper atmosphere and then you wait 30 days, it'll just circle around Antarctica. And then eventually when it gets back to where you started, you, you cut it down and go get the pieces. Now, when you say cut it down, you, you drop the payload of instruments yeah. and you let the balloon float away or what? Yep. So you drop the payload of instruments and you uh, let the balloon float away. But the balloon comes comes down also. Eventually. It's, uh, yeah. The reason the balloon payload is really nice is because when you're up at 40 kilometers looking down, by the way, I think we're the only telescope, right, that NASA launches on this platform that looks down, right? Like everyone else <laughs> wants to go into space to look up. But what yeah, we've right. done is we've you know, built a payload that looks down, which is sort yeah, of funny. Or, ordinarily, that would get an astronomer disqualified. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. But you, <laughs> you just have to be a little... the telescope pointed at his shoes. What are you doing? <laughs> right. No, but we, we basically point the telescope down. Um, and the reason is then we can monitor this huge volume of ice. And the horizon is 700 kilometers in every direction. So at any, any moment, we're just like lo looking at it, basically the entire 
you know, a large fraction of the continent of Antarctica. Neutrino astronomy has had major advancements in the last 10 years or so. And that's due to an experiment called IceCube, which I can say that because I don't work on it and I can give them a lot of credit of, you know, IceCube, you know, has made really nice and beautiful measurements of neutrinos from astrophysical sources. But IceCube is, it's a beautiful experiment at the South Pole. As the name implies, it's about a cubic kilometer. That's why it's called Ice Cube. Cubic kilometer. It's about a cubic kilometer big. Which, again, if you want to look for the highest energy neutrinos, eventually, if you go high enough in energy, that just becomes a little too small, actually. So you need to become, you just need to get creative and think about a way to instrument a larger volume. And that's what the balloon payload really started as. It started as a, a way to think outside the box and ask the question, how can I view the most ice possible at once to really try to nail down what's happening at the highest energies? It seems to me that detecting high-energy uh, neutrinos in a cubic kilometer of ice is possible, but they're so rare that it either needs to be way bigger or you need to be prepared to sit there for a thousand years hoping you, you finally get one. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's not a physical problem in a way. It's more like a time problem. It's a time problem. Yeah. If I could sit around for a thousand years, you know, we'd see a lot of neutrinos with a pretty, with a much smaller detector, but I don't have time to wait for that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so if you haven't, if you haven't found anything yet, what's your next step? Yeah. So as a, you know, as someone who likes to think about how to solve technical problems, when I think about how you push the field forward, like we haven't seen anything yet, so what do we need to do? We, we need to build a more sensitive detector, right? Because it could be that the signal, these neutrinos, are sort of sitting right below where the sensitivity of our detectors is. In fact, a lot of theorists would tell you that that's the case, that there should be neutrinos sort of if we can just build a little more sensitive detector. So that's what we've spent a lot of our time thinking about is how you change um, how you use new technology, basically, to build a more sensitive detector. And so we, in the next few years, are going to fly actually a new balloon experiment um, in Antarctica um, called Pueo, which will um, increase the sensitivity by, by quite a bit um, over previous efforts. And we're also building um, a set of uh, ground-based experiments where we put antennas, radio antennas, on the ice in both Greenland, actually, and hopefully at South Pole um, to uh, monitor a large, larger volume of ice. The name of the game is to increase sensitivity, so that's what we're planning to do. When we come back from our break, Abby Vierig tells me how her career in high-energy physics has some unexpected connections to the world of show business after this. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, 
the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Abby Vierig. It's very interesting to me that you have two connections to show business. One is that you, in college you minored in theater, right? Yeah, I studied theater in college. You would never think that a physics professor studied theater in college, but here I am, living proof. Well, I think it contributes to the, the you're, you have a real ability to be clear and vivid, which is our, you know, our goal here. And I'm, I'm wondering if you're having studied theater and, and worked on relating to the people you're communicating with, which you have to do in theater. I wonder if that's helped. Do you have any, any awareness of that, that, of that connection? I think I definitely have learned um, how, to, how to actively watch and learn from people who are good at communicating. So, and also learn from people who are bad at communicating. So when I go to a colloquium, if I'm, which is, a, you know, talk at the university, uh-huh. if I'm bored by the science that's happening or if I really can't follow it, I... I sort of actively become a student of what is the person doing right or wrong? How can I learn from what's happening to make myself mm-hmm. better in the future when I give talks? I'm always trying to ask the question like, ah, that person did this right. You know, I need to um, follow their their lead. The other connection with show business is that borrowing the uh, parkas from the television show, Big Bang Theory, right? Yeah. <laughs> How did so, that work out? Yeah. So um, my graduate school advisor um, was a, a really great graduate school advisor. I couldn't have asked for better. David Salzberg, who's at UCLA. So I went to grad school at UCLA. And David, um, at the time when I was a graduate student, he became the science consultant for the Big Bang Theory. And he stayed on actually with the show the whole time. Um, and so if you've ever seen the whiteboards on the show, The Big Bang Theory, that's, that's David. So he's, he does this, you know, he's a particle physicist and he works on ultra high energy neutrinos also with us still. And, uh, you know, I think my thesis ended up on those whiteboards at some point. (laughs) So (laughs) the perks of being the student of the guy who writes the whiteboards. So, um, yeah. So at some point when we were trying to, um, start an experiment in Greenland, and we were really working on a shoestring budget. So I was a postdoc still. I wasn't, I still hadn't landed a faculty job. Um, and so I had really very limited budget. But I had this idea that we should go to Greenland and we should see if the ice there would be good for detecting neutrinos. So in order to detect neutrinos, ice has to be really radio transparent for, you know, because when a neutrino hits the ice, it, it makes radio waves. Those radio waves have to get to your detector. You have to be able to see them. And if you, if the ice isn't radio transparent, you have no prayer of seeing them. So the first thing you have to do to find a suitable site is to measure to see how radio transparent the site is. So when I was still a postdoc, David and I um, and two other collaborators went up to Greenland. We were really on a shoestring budget, and we didn't want to pay the you know thousand dollars a jacket for the Canada Goose parka that, you know, is popular these days, but it's what you actually need 
in Greenland when you're up there. But it turns out that David had helped the Big Bang Theory do an episode where they went to the Arctic, I think, and they had in the costume, you know, warehouse these parkas that these guys had, and we we borrowed them from the from the costume <laughs> crew. And I can't even remember if they wanted them back or not. Maybe they wanted them back, but um, they were certainly worse for the wear by the time by the time we returned them. Wardrobe from Warner Brothers for the yeah, I thought that scientific was pretty experiment. Yeah. And and I heard you say once that a scientific experiment of uh, of the kind you do is a little bit like a theater production. Yeah, I definitely feel that way, especially about scientific ballooning. That ballooning is this really exciting, and frankly, it's exciting because it's a little bit risky. It's an exciting way of doing science where you build this payload that's about a thousand, you know, a few thousand pounds, and you launch it into space, more or less. You launch it on this balloon, um, and and you hope for the best. And it's, you know, you're, you get the whole production ready. It's like, it's, it is like putting on a show. You, you build the whole instrument, you get the whole production ready. You, you do all the rehearsals in that you, you know, calibrate everything, make sure everything's working right. And then when you're ready to go on, you tell them like, we're ready to launch. And then you, um, you eventually launch the payload when there's good weather. And then, you hope that like it doesn't crash and burn when it launches and that it launches into space, right? When when I did my PhD thesis on one of these balloons, I remember standing there thinking that I'd spent the last five years building this thing and there was like a 10% chance that it something was going to go wrong and I'd have to spend a few more years in graduate school. But it was completely out of my control. Um, opening night. For me, o- opening it, night. Right, opening night. It's sort of like who knows what's going to go on, right? <laughs> And then you sort of get into the routine and you have your production run where you, you know, take data and you have 30 days of data taking. And then we even have, you know, we even have our own version of strike where like we, we send the command to the payload, the payload gets dropped to the ground. And if all goes well, a parachute deploys and it hits the ground at 20 miles an hour, which is still really fast. And then we have to send someone to go pick out the pieces which is sort of, you know, and it's the same thing. I remember in college, we would have strike and it would be like, we'd all show up with sawzalls and cut the whole thing apart and try to haul, you know, haul it off the stage so the next thing could come in. It's the same thing. You show up on the Antarctic ice with, you know, your sawzall and you cut it all up to put it in the plane to take it home. So I actually find kind of a lot of similarities. That's why I fell in love with it. I I really have always loved science, but for me, um, it's the combination of the compelling science with the ability to build something that's bigger than yourself with your own hands. That's so interesting because what you're getting out of that thing you build with your own hands is an intellectual understanding of things that you can't ever come in contact with. The yeah. beginning of the universe, the way matter works, the way the universe interacts with itself, it's all... It's all an intellectual trophy you're after, but you do it by building things with your hands. It's such I know. a b- difference between those two experiences. I yeah, and I I think to be a successful, you know, experimental physicist, it just requires so many different things, right? You have to be able to work with your hands and actually build stuff. You have to be able to um program computers and analyze data. You have to be able to think about the big science questions and what's interesting to do next. And I I do find it amazing that you can, you know, 
build uh build an instrument that looks at some of the most fundamental questions of science. It's more like arts and crafts than you might imagine. <laughs> right? Sometimes Tell me about that. I was trying to think about what you know how to say it, but it's it's more like arts and crafts than you might imagine. Where you think about like scientific instruments as being this really high tech, you know, you have to invent a ton of new stuff to make it happen. Everything has to be perfect. And at some level some of that is true. Like sometimes you have to really use pieces of cutting edge stuff and sometimes things don't exist and you have to learn how to make it yourself. But sometimes it's just like, you know, put a little more aluminum tape on this and like, you know, put a little more foam here and maybe screw that in a little tighter and then it'll work. That's great. You're inventing the whole time. You're yeah. experimenting the whole time. You're building the experiment. That's just great. Before we go, I wanted to ask you, we're doing a series of shows this season with women in science, and pretty much everybody has had a story to tell about the extra hurdles they have to encounter and do something about that male scientists don't seem to have to. Is that true for you? And if it's true for you, how do you handle it? I often remind myself, and I think it's very telling actually, that the reason I'm still here in science is because when I was a graduate student and a postdoc, either there weren't really a lot of extra hurdles or I didn't notice them. Mm. So it's almost like this selection bias that because I had a very seamless grad school and postdoc where I really felt like I was part of the team and and doing well and and was the environment I was in was welcoming and encouraging. Um, that's the reason I'm still here, right? It, and if it had been the other way, maybe I wouldn't still be here. So I've I had a, I think, just because of that fact, like I think I've had a actually an unusual experience in the sense that it's honestly been pretty good, I have to say, through my training. Um, as I get farther along as faculty, I definitely notice um, more and more how not only for students around me, but also for myself that as it's almost like as the stakes get higher in my career, and I can talk about that a little bit, but as the stakes get higher and the competition gets harder, um, I definitely notice things. So, mm. um, now I'm at the phase where instead of, you know, where I'm trying to get projects funded, right. And that's very competitive as you can probably imagine, like in order to get, taxpayer dollars to fund your crazy science idea it has to be a good one and you have to justify it because you you know you can't ask people to pay for something that isn't worth doing right you have to really justify it i think that's that's the correct thing but it's quite competitive and so i i definitely notice that as time goes on and i sort of you know end up in these positions where um i'm applying for grants and applying for big projects that there seem to be, uh, you know, I often think to myself, am I getting that feed? Would they really say that to a man? Like, would mm. they really give that feedback to a man? Yeah. It, it happens more and more for me over time, actually. How do you handle it? What do you, what, what's your response? Well, I think for me, fortunately, it's been very subtle in a lot of ways. Um, and so I, I think for me, there's not really much um, that I do personally other than, um, 
try to work to change it for the future, right? So I think like a lot of women in physics, um, I spend more than most of my male colleagues, I spend more energy than most of my male colleagues thinking about how to improve faculty hiring, how to improve uh, grant application processes, uh, you know, paper writing processes, how to improve the experience for students and things like this. And, you know, one of the things you said at the beginning was extra burden. I think in terms of my time, th that is one of the things now that I have extra burden for sure compared to my colleagues, which is sort of the number of committees <laughs> and the number of, you know, the number of random students around the department who knock on my office door because they need someone who looks like them to help them with their situation. Mm -hmm. There aren't that many office doors to knock on. It's so interesting how I think everybody we've talked to has been, who I've raised that question with, has recognized it as work that needs to be done. And they're working on it, actively, consciously spending time to make it better for everybody, including the next generation. Yeah. I, you know, I look across the field and it's changed a, a lot in the last, you know, some number of tens of years, but it, you know, there's a lot of work that has to happen and physics especially, um, still has certainly elements of, you know, what you think of as like the old boys club, mm -hmm. you know, and I do see it, um, you know, I see, I definitely see it. I think fortunately for me, I was probably a young, naive graduate student. I basically just ignored it all in grad school and a postdoc. And, you know, I was in, in such an environment that I was able to, to succeed and get through. This has been so interesting on so many levels. We have to go now, but before we go, we end our show with seven quick questions. Oh, great. Are you, are you game? They're, they're roughly about science. Can you remember the first thing that you were curious about in your life? Oh, boy. I don't remember the first thing I was curious about in my life. Um, definitely when I was a little kid, I do remember, you know, I wasn't one of these, you know, I sort of do particle astrophysics. So I, I was not one of these kids who looked up at the night sky and said, you know, I need to do this for a living. <laughs> I do know people, I work with people like that. And I find that amazing. They're like, when I was seven, I wanted to be an astrophysicist and here I am. I, I wasn't like that. But I do remember spending a lot of my childhood with my grandmother um, who taught me how to build things with my hands. And I was always, you know, she... Um, taught me how to use a hammer, how to use a screwdriver. We built a, a little boat together out of wood. I mean, we built a lot of stuff together. You know, I remember patching her car with fiberglass, which is not how, what you're supposed to do, but it was a cheap solution um, one summer. And and I think the curiosity of how to solve problems like that in, you know, physical problems, that's definitely something that I remember for when I was a little kid. What do you think made you want to be a scientist? I've always been someone who likes to solve problems. So, you know, I I could have ended up in any I could have ended up in many fields of science. I find so many questions in science so interesting, right? And so why did I end up in this field of science versus some other field? I I don't know. That that is sort of random a random walk. But how I ended up in science, in retrospect, it was always like it was like the writing was always on the wall. 
I was a kid who always wanted to know the answer to everything, who <laughs> always wanted to work with my hands, you know, and build stuff. And, you know, I really liked puzzles and problems to solve. And I, I think that I've always had this sort of ability to look at the physical world and try to dissect it in the language of like math and numbers. And that's basically what we do as physicists. So that sort of leads into the next question, maybe. What part of your research do you enjoy the most? Oh, I enjoy the fieldwork the most. I can answer that one quick. So I enjoy the fieldwork the most, which is um, getting to go to these really cool and extreme places and and just really see the experiment happen. I mean, we spend years and years planning, and then ultimately you get on, you know, the U.S. Air National Guard plane and you get to Antarctica, and it's a challenge. It's hard. I mean, the work at South Pole is very hard in the sense that it's physically demanding and it um, it's cold, obviously, and it's a strange environment, but it really makes you feel alive, mm. and it really makes you feel like um, all the work that you did on spreadsheets and budgeting and this or that is coming to fruition. So next question, as a scientist, what was the best moment you've ever had? Um, you know, it's interesting. I could probably give an entire podcast about that. <laughs> oh, <good to> give, <laughs> um, give us a, a summary. Yeah. So when I was a postdoc, I worked on a telescope called BICEP. So I worked on a telescope, which is actually not neutrinos. I only talked about neutrinos today, but I worked on a telescope that looks at the oldest light in the universe, which is called the cosmic microwave background. And the cosmic microwave background, by the way, is amazing. It's, it's like you can make a map of the sky, and it's like you're taking a baby picture of the universe. So anyway, we built these telescopes um, and put them at the South Pole um, to look at the cosmic microwave background. And in 2014... We um, published a paper that uh, had had made a detection. So we made a detection of this this um, signal from the Big Bang that um, was would have would be amazing. So it was a signal from the Big Bang that um, would have confirmed this theory called inflation that said that in the very early universe, the universe expanded extremely quickly. Um, in the first trillionth of a trillionth. In the first trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth. Yeah, in oh, the first yeah, exactly. trillionth of a trillionth. It was yep. worse than I thought. It's worse. It's really bad. Yeah, the first trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. Um, and so we um we had a discovery. So we had a we had a signal in our detector that was above, you know, really significant. And I have to say that even though it turns out, I will spoil, spoiler alert, so even though it turns out that in the end it wasn't the signal from inflation, it was um, pretty boring signal from dust in our own galaxy that got in the way and mimicked the signal from inflation. So in the end it turned out to be um, dust, like you had to, you know, dust, dust that's in the way. Um, I still actually think that, that when, when you ask about what was the greatest moment in my scientific career, right, so far, that was a very exciting moment to I be part of. I can see that, yeah. Even though it turned out that in the end um, it was not what we thought it was, the lead-up to publishing that paper and the experience throughout it and then going and giving a bunch of talks about what this, you know, what we saw and what it might mean if it turns out 
was fascinating. It was fascinating. So that leads into what the next question always is, which is, what was your worst moment? Was it when you found out? <laughs> yeah, so that might also be the worst moment, right? I mean, it's sort of the best and the worst. Um, we sort of, um, you know, in the paper, we didn't say this is a signal from inflation. No. What we said is we have a detection and we don't, you know, we've tried to remove dust already. It doesn't, you know... Um, but we never, you know, so the paper still stands, but, um, you know, that's not a great moment either is to realize like when the next experiment, the sort of complementary experiment publishes their data. And then we actually ended up joining forces with them and publishing a joint paper, which was a really nice thing, um, that basically said, it's not inflation, it's dust in our own universe, in our own galaxy. That's, uh, that was not a highlight, I have to say. But to, to be able to handle that takes confidence. And the next to last question is, what gives you confidence? You mean me personally? Yeah. Yeah. So what I think it is funny. You have to have a lot of confidence to do science. Ultimately, you have to have confidence in your own ideas and that you can execute it um, and that you, um, yeah, that you have to have confidence that your crazy idea might be worth doing. So where does it come from for you? I honestly, I think it comes from talking to other people. So I talk to my colleagues both here, you know, at Chicago um, and around the world. And, you know, you talk to some people who are extremely smart and you just probe enough people who are extremely smart. And I have the utmost respect for, and, and ultimately you, you know, start to get confidence that what you're doing um, is interesting and worth doing and and could, you know, push science forward. Last question. How do you think we can help people get more of a love of science? Yeah. I. So I have a five-year-old daughter, huh. and I see it in her. Her curiosity is she's completely unfettered. <laughs> That's the word I'll use. She's she just asks a ton of questions and I try my best to like just straight up answer every one that I know and and really try to just um keep her asking questions and and I don't know what happens but at some point a large fraction of people seem to stop asking questions. Um and I would I don't know how to change that but I think um, figuring out how to go from the five-year-old who will not just question after question after question to making sure that our, you know, 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds are still asking all those questions. I, I think that would help a lot. This has been so much fun for me. Thank you for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. You got me a little farther along in, in understanding this little baby particle. Oh, good. Well, it was really fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Abigail Vierig is a professor at the University of Chicago where she runs the Vierig Lab. It's a leader in the detection of high-energy neutrinos from distant galaxies. She's won many awards for her research, but the one she's most proud of 
is a spherical cow award presented by the University of Chicago Physics graduate students for best teaching and mentoring. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Polina Anakiva. She's making breakthroughs in communicating with the cells of the brain and spinal cord using ultra-thin electrodes and even tiny magnetic particles. We are very much at the frontier of technology. A lot of things that we do are strange and wild and are very far away from the clinic uh, because there's a lot of um, uh, safety and uh, efficacy studies that need to be conducted before we can uh, apply this to, to treat uh, human condition. But in terms of uh, providing information to understand how the brain works, how the nervous system works, that's what our devices are ready to be used right now. Polina Anakiva, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>